Welcome to Vows to Keep Radio with David and Tracy Sellers. The mission of Vows to Keep is to help couples develop a biblically healthy marriage through the application of God's Word and a deeper relationship with Him. They desire to help you and your spouse grow closer to each other and closer to the heart of God's design for your marriage. Now, here's David and Tracy with today's broadcast. Welcome to Vows to Keep Radio. Have you ever wondered if your marriage was a mistake? Maybe your marriage started like ours. All of the warning signs were there. When I went to Tracy's parents to ask permission to marry her, the response was not good. It literally ended with her dad saying, I suppose I can't stop you. So months later when the wedding day came, it wasn't the scene we dreamed it would be. I mean, the venue was very nice, the decor was pretty, but there were figurative red flags all over. The best men at my wedding were my brothers, and both of them were literally holding back tears, rather unsuccessfully, I might add, while we said our vows. They felt that me marrying Tracy was going to be an inevitable train wreck. And it wasn't much different on my side. My mom didn't meet me at the wedding venue to help me get into my wedding dress. Instead, while I was walking out the door of my house on the way to go get changed, she left me with this statement. It's not too late, Tracy. You you don't have to go through with this. Mind you, this is just hours before the ceremony. My mom figured that my marriage was going to be a prison I would someday want out of. Probably out of the 100 plus guests that were there that day were to support us. But about 10 to 15 of those people made up of close family just knew that this marriage wasn't going to last. And for that group of doubters, we were like two fools setting ourselves up for failure by becoming locked together. Now we tell you this true story because I think our marriage started like many others. Many people have doubted the validity of your marriage. And if you're honest, that group might now even include you. You might feel like if you could go back in time, you might not join yourself in matrimony to that woman or man. This person at one time seemed to be like that dream come true, like everything you've waited for. Your life partner, they're your best friend. They were your advocate. They were your ally. But somewhere along the way, they become more like your enemy. If we're going to have a family movie night at our house, one of my favorites is Back to the Future. The characters get into their silver DeLorean and jet back and forth to the past and even the future. They set the date on the car's clock. They pick their exact time and place, and they try not to change history to therefore change the future. Oh, how we wish we had such capabilities. If you had a time machine, what would you do with it? Would you reverse some of the decisions that you made? Would you still say I do to your spouse? I can picture that some of the people listening right now would say, you know what, (laughs) I would change things if I knew how it was going to turn out. My marriage has not gone the way that I wanted it to. I don't think it has for her either. You would say things like, we've come into this marriage and we had stars in our eyes, but now we're just burned by the reality of this relationship. I never thought in a million years this sweet little bride or this wonderfully caring husband would become the equivalent of a ball and chain. Now, a ball and chain is a classic phrase in marriage, and if we get downright to it, this is actually an apparatus that was invented in the 17th century for a very specific purpose. It's to keep prisoners from escaping. Can you picture this in your mind? There's like a five-inch iron ball that weighs 18 to 20 pounds, and it's attached to a 35-inch chain that ends with an iron shackle around your ankle. Boy, that sounds like fun, huh? Yeah, not so much. 
Well, some people see attaching themselves to someone for a lifetime as though it is a restraint to their freedom, a boundary that's going to limit their future happiness. But they go ahead and take the chance anyway. Why? I think it's because they want to be happy and they think marriage might be the answer for that happiness. So what happens between those sweet words spoken and romance and friendship that lead to marriage to the couple who now can't even stand to be in the same room with each other? The couple that now takes every opportunity they have to tear down their spouse or at best avoid them. The list of sins that break our unity within marriage can get really long. Things like betrayal. Sins of selfishness that over time have slowly crushed you. There's ill treatment of one another. Your spouse asking you to give and then not being thoughtful enough to actually see that they're there to meet your needs too. There's bitterness and anger, maybe unfaithfulness, or just flat out no investment on the part of your spouse. Any one of these things can cause us to begin to view our spouse as an enemy. For some, we would even view them as a jailer. Someone who is flat out an obstacle, a captor to our happiness. That's when we start to see that our marriage is our prison. And we have an enemy, Satan, who would love to tell us that our marriage is a prison. He would love to tell us to leave our spouse if we've been wronged in any way, because certainly we don't deserve that. He even has suggestions as to what would be the key we need to bust out of this place. Divorce or at very least emotional and financial separation. Basically, two people living in the same house, but living their own distinct lives. Satan tells us that this separation will ensure us the freedom that we have a right to. Well, as I think about prisons and marriage, I'm reminded of a story in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are actually thrown into prison, and that's after being beaten and severely flogged. Paul had cast out a demon from a slave girl who was making her masters a lot of money by predicting the future. Sounds a little bit like that uh, DeLorean you're talking about. Well, when they lost their source of income, they get a crowd together and they all come against Paul and Silas. And they had them not only put in jail, but they were placed in an inner cell, a place that they had no hope of escape. And then their feet were put in stocks. Talk about being trapped. Wow. What made it even worse, though, was that it was someone else's sin that day that caused these two men to be in severe pain and torment. Is that how you might classify your marriage? See, sin always has an effect on us and those around us. It has from the very beginning. If you look at the Garden of Eden, when the serpent successfully got Adam and Eve to fall to the prey of sin's deception, sin has held us hostage. John 8, 34 tells us that when we sin, we instantly become slaves to that sin. And sometimes it seems like our spouse's sin is so great. It's gone on for so long that we also become bound up because of what they are doing. We see in our mind's eye, the prison walls forming experience being a teacher suggests that we are most often blind to the log in our own eye though, as we glare with frustration at our spouse's speck. I hope this sounds like a verse that you might know. What happens to our relationships in our lives that we're no longer seeing our spouse as an asset, but now we see him as a liability. Well, I'll tell you what it's sin. Sin is a powerful thing, and it's deceptive. It's like holding on to that newborn baby, so sweet and innocent, and then you fast forward four years, and this baby is now a screaming, kicking toddler who wants their way, and they want it now. And you're saying to yourself, whoa, what happened? Well, that's sin. That's what happened. David reminds us in Psalm 51.5 that we're actually sinful from the time we're conceived. 
That precious baby that we can't hold long enough, who steals my heart, is a sinner just like you and I. That beautiful bride who you kissed passionately as the preacher directed at the end of your marriage ceremony, she's a sinner just like you are. And the presence of sin always breaks down unity. It messes everything up. And the first relationship it divides is between us and our creator, our heavenly father. Our sin separates us from a holy God. And it has since the first sin, and it still is having the same effect today. Isaiah 59 tells us that it's our sin that's cut us off from God. We're the ones in the prison, and we need to be broken out, and the blood of Jesus is the only thing that will do it. I don't know if you've noticed maybe effects of sin in your relationship. Maybe you've seen that sin separates you from those that are around you who love you. Maybe the prison walls you feel in your marriage were built brick by brick by your response to the life that's happening around you. Maybe your frustration has turned to anger, which has turned to spouts of rage, and now you find yourself facing life alone. Today, many unwilling souls simply see that they were provoked, never seeing the effects of our own sin and what it's doing to someone else. From the viewpoint of me, I never see the prison walls that I built all around myself because I'm buried in anguish, feeling sorry for myself. And in this case, it's my spouse's sin. The old adage is true. Misery loves company. So you know what? We often go and find someone who's willing to commiserate with us. Very often a married man or wife turns to his family or to his friends and starts sharing the problems within their marriage, only to find that the solution that they're trying to find in these other people is completely non-existent. There's no good advice from others. Let me give you an example. A couple came to us a few years back who were trying to have children. And after trying for a while, they found it was not possible for them to conceive. So the husband, we'll call Josh, started to complain to his family and friends that his wife had physically abandoned him. Well, this is the story that the whole world heard. Meanwhile, what was actually happening was he was delving deep into the sin of pornography and his viewpoint on physical unity was turning into something that was demeaning. And it was actually further imprisoning his wife if she ever did choose to come around. So both of them were building walls of imprisonment around their marriage. Ironically, they could only see the other person's sin. The wife felt that her husband was torturing her with his mere presence, and he could only see her cold looks and unkind words. Many times when we start to feel like this, we want to share this with someone else. Sometimes it's anyone who will listen, or maybe we'll share with just our closest friend. Either way, we start seeking sympathy. And sympathy-seeking can do some crazy things to us and our marriage. You're listening to Vows to Keep Radio with David and Tracy Sellers. Vows to Keep wants to help. If you have a marriage question, please email questions at vowstokeep.com. Vows to Keep will respond to you via email and perhaps use it on the air. Now let's rejoin David and Tracy Sellers with the remainder of today's broadcast. Self-pity chains me up to my circumstance until I can't find a way out. Self-pity says, I'll be happy when I'm finally free from this person. And in that, I forget that God tells me, There's going to be tribulation in this world, but to take heart because God has overcome it all. When I'm sharing these thoughts and feelings with another friend and they're agreeing with me, I can't see clearly anymore. In my self-pity, I can't grow as a Christian. Maybe you can relate to this. I haven't learned like Paul did 
to be content in every situation, to actually let my trials be something that God could use to mold me to be more like his image. I'm only looking at the hardships. I'm only seeing the chains that are binding me. When I'm in the mode of self-pity, here's something else that can't happen. I cannot be thankful. Self-pity and thankfulness never reside in the same heart. When I'm feeling sorry for myself, telling them about my marriage prison, I cannot give thanks to God in all circumstances like I'm instructed to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For many people, self-pity becomes a chain when they're listening to the lie that they're entitled to a problem-free life and a problem-free marriage. And then they get to demanding their rights when those things aren't happening. For some, they tend to isolate themselves, saying, you know what, if my spouse cared about me, he would do the things I'm asking. Self-pity becomes all-encompassing as I focus inward instead of observing the call from Christ that I have to love those that are around me. Self-pity also makes my sins microscopic and my spouse's sins gigantic. It puts me in a place of judgment thinking, you know what, your sins are the reason that we're in this state. But it makes my spouse the enemy, the one who needs to repent. And I, of course, I'm doing all things fine. Have you found yourself thinking these thoughts, believing these things? It's when we do that we find ourselves in a self-made jail for one. We point our accusing finger between the bars and say, you're the one who put me here. Thanks a lot. And we install the final bar to our prison with our complaining and our whining. That's the ever-present companion to feeling sorry for ourselves. So let's sit in the driver's seat of our DeLorean for a moment here. Let's buckle in and punch in Acts chapter 16. We're going to do a little time travel today and peek in on Paul and Silas in their inner prison chained to the wall. Now I've been in some small tight spaces before, but typically I do my best to stay out of these type of circumstances. How about you? When David and I went to Colorado to visit family recently, we had the opportunity to descend into an old silver mine. Sound exciting? Not for me. I sweetly declined that offer, and I had no heartburn about missing such a trip into a dark, cold space. I don't even like the concept of sitting on a plane for a couple hours. So if this was me in jail that day for something I didn't do, you can bet I'd be pretty vocal about my opinion of this particular state of affairs. But as we look around the corner in this dark prison Paul was in, we see something astonishing. Not two innocent men demanding that they be let go. No jeering at their guard. No attempt at convincing anyone that they be acquitted right now. No plea that they be able to state their case before a judge. Not even silence as they try to process what might happen to them next. No, we don't see any of that. Instead, we witness something unheard of unthinkable, totally out of the ordinary. At midnight, when it was pitch black, dark, in a cold, dreary place with no escape, they were doing two remarkable things, praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now, why in the world would they do that? The prayer part, I think I can understand, asking God for help. But praising? Acts 16.26 says, Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains off every prisoner. Praise did what it always does in our hearts. It sets us as captives free. Praise does the opposite of complaining. It brings glory to God rather than putting a spotlight on our own problems. And in that, we find 
that we don't have to live in self-pity, but instead we learn that our lives are meant to point people to God. Do you know what was happening the whole time Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises? What they were doing was having an effect not only on the other prisoners, but the guard. They were doing what the Lord was looking for. Acts 16.27 says the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He was in disbelief that they hadn't run away. And knowing that he could have been killed for losing prisoners, he responds to the Christian message that Paul and Silas had been conveying. And he does that by saying, you know what, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He wanted what they had. I love what Paul and Silas are modeling for us here. I mean, sure, we read in passages from Paul and other books of the Bible saying that he's learned to be content in all things, but we see this in this real-life situation, one that doesn't look like it's going to come out for any good. Let's shift our attention from Paul's story to our own marriage for a moment. In our marriages, we can feel so trapped at times, but rather than bargaining our way out of it or looking for some loophole that would get us out and exonerate us from any consequences— What would happen if we started doing what Paul and Silas did in the darkest hour with what looks like no hope in sight? What if we actually prayed for our marriage? What if we ignored for a moment what we thought was a shackle holding us down and we focused on daily praying for our spouse instead? You've heard about the power of prayer. We've seen examples of it in God's word. You know, a friend whose test results didn't look so good, but people were praying. And then when they went in for their checkup, They were given a clean bill of health, all because a caring, listening God answered just in the nick of time. When we hear of a car accident or cancer or a lost job, we find it easy to pray and ask for help. What about your marriage? Is it sick? Has it crashed? Does it appear to have hope for tomorrow? If not, then pray and get serious about taking your marriage situation before the Lord. Ask him to work in your spouse's heart and to make him more like his savior. It's amazing that when we do that, when we pray like that, all of a sudden, we don't see ourselves like we used to. This is because we can't be on our knees asking God to change our spouse's heart without realizing that our own heart doesn't see God as big enough to save our marriage. Now, I hope you're smart enough to realize that no good lasting change can come from anything other than God at work within us. We can't look for those answers outside of the Lord. Let's go back and let's talk more about Paul and Silas. I mean, they're actually physically locked in a prison, but God has a purpose. He put these guys in a place that seemed impossible to endure because God has the jailer's heart in mind. We go back to Acts 16 verse 30, where the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Well, they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of God with him and all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them. He washes their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before him. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. Now, as a reader of the scripture, we see the heart of these men for the jailer. 
we see the impact that they have on the jailer. I mean, the jailer himself was in effect set free that night, not just Paul and Silas. The jailer was set free at an eternal level. Amazing things can happen when we don't see our marriage as a prison that we've just got to break free from. Amazing things can happen when we don't see our spouse as the jailer or an obstacle to our freedom. Amazing things can happen when we see that our spouse is in need of Jesus and we're a person with responsibility to actually serve the Lord, not just run free. Do you think it was worth it for Paul to be in prison for the jailer to have eternal life? Do you think it's possible that God has put you in your marriage for the same kind of reason? Do you think it's possible that God has allowed some of the hardships in your life so that you could seek freedom at Christ's hand of salvation rather than your own? God can do great and marvelous things that you can't even imagine when you pray for your spouse, when you pray for your marriage, and you praise God for who he is despite the trials and the prison walls that you see in your life. Ask God to help you love this person who you've been seen as an enemy. Ask God to help you to do good to them, even if it doesn't seem like they're changing. Bless them in the way you speak to them, how you think about them, how you treat them. This gets our hearts involved and it helps us to see our sin for what it really is. No more do we go into pity mode, fixating only on our spouse's sin. We see more clearly that every sin that's ever been committed, required a sacrifice for payment, no matter how big or small it is. My sin, his sin, all of it demanded recompense. And we have that now in Christ Jesus. And that leads me to praise. Praising God helps me to remember that I need him every day in every way. And in my praise, I can remind myself who God is and all he's done for me. And then I become thankful Remember, self-pity and thankfulness cannot reside in the same heart. As we conclude today on Vows Keep Radio, I'd like to tell you one more story about Paul. During his ministry, it's been researched that he was in prison in various places. He was actually in prison for like five or six years of his life. He endured hardships that you and I will never know. And I know that you're facing hardships that he didn't know. Yet, not only did Paul not complain, he went willingly. Even when he knew he was going to be mistreated or misunderstood. In Acts 21, his friends are literally pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem. They're warning him what's going to be waiting for him. And here we see his astonishing response in verse 13. He says, I am ready not only to be bound, but to also die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Some of us are standing in prison walls that we believe are literally defined by our marriage. But the truth is, they are actually put there sometimes by Satan, deceiving one or both of your hearts into destruction. Some of us are standing in prison walls that we personally have built. It wasn't our plan, but it was within our control to stop the grip that sin had on us. Some of us are in victim mode, not seeing the purpose of what God's doing. Others are in a prison indeed, not even created by us, but they're there. So here's Paul's example. He does what we're called to do, to emulate Jesus. Paul knew that his Savior gave it all for him. Paul knew what Jesus wants to teach you and I today, that we need to be willing not only to stay in a situation that maybe doesn't meet our newlywed standards, 
but to thrive in our relationship with God in such a powerful way that we would change the heart of the person who holds us. This is not an easy topic, but if your marriage feels like a prison, pray for a love that God would allow you to praise in the middle of your trials and use your dependency on him to preach a message within your marriage louder than any other words you could say. You've been listening to Vows to Keep Radio with David and Tracy Sellers. Vows to Keep offers Christ-centered marriage resources for couples wishing to prepare, enrich, and renew their marriages. These resources include weekend retreats, conferences, date nights, and radio broadcasts across Ohio. Your financial gift will allow Vows to Keep to continue to help couples develop biblically healthy marriages. Please prayerfully consider making a donation to help serve future couples. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation or to find out more about Vows to Keep, visit our website at VowsToKeep.com. This program is sponsored by Vows to Keep of Zanesfield, Ohio.